Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Welcome back to Real Vision. Great being with you today, Ash. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. You're one of the most important voices in macroeconomics in the world. We're filming here on March 20, 2023. A great deal to talk about right now. Instability in the banking system, about macroeconomic imbalances and risk. Your latest book is all about risk. Mega threats, the 10 trends that imperil our future and how to survive them. It's really a crystallization of so much of your thought. Nuriel, big picture, where are we right now and where are we going? Well, we're at a very difficult time because uh, there was already a dilemma in terms of achieving uh, price stability and pushing inflation back to 2% without causing a recession. That was the dilemma faced by the Fed, the ECB, and other central banks. But now this dilemma is becoming a trilemma because on one side, we want to have price stability and inflation back to 2%. Two, we want to avoid a recession and a hard landing. And three, we want to avoid uh, financial instability. And as I describe in quite detail in my book, we live in a world in which uh, there are both supply and demand forces that are leading to high inflation and stagflation, inflation and recession. And we're also in a world in which there is so much private and public debt that the attempt of central banks to raise interest rates to fight inflation causes not only the risk of a hard landing of the real economy, but it causes the risk of financial instability, debt ratios, private and public, that become excessive and unsustainable. And then if you're going to have financial instability, that's going to cause a credit crunch going to make the recession more severe. And if the recession becomes more severe, debt ratios that are already high become more unsustainable as incomes and revenues fall. So we are entering a vicious cycle between high inflation, recession, and financial instability feeding on each other. And there is no easy way out of it because we live in a world of high inflation, of negative supply shock, and high debt that create uh, financial instability. So either way, we're going to get a hard landing of the real economy and of financial markets at this point. So I want to share this quote just to give people a little bit of context of how serious you believe this situation is. Quote, spoiler alert, without amazing luck, almost unprecedented economic growth and unlikely global cooperation, this won't end well. We are in way too deep. And then you go on to say, Failure to restore sustainable and inclusive growth could plunge us back into the tribal dark ages when competing interests spurred endless national and global conflicts to no one's benefit. It's a very serious picture you paint. Uh, you talk about a whole different series of different categories here, just a wide array of challenges facing the globe, debt, inflation, demographics, trade, AI, deglobalization, geopolitics, pandemics. It's all in there. Let's start with debt. Talk about where we are. You describe almost an Argentineization of the world right now. How do you see the debt problem in both public and private spaces? 
Well, as you point out in this book, I discuss not only economic, monetary, and financial risks, but also social, political, geopolitical, environmental, health, and technological, and we're gonna get to them, but they're all interrelated to each other. Uh, the starting point of the book is two chapters about uh, the model of all debt crisis. <clears throat> I point out that uh, private and public debt, private being the debt of a household, of businesses and corporates, uh, of banks and other financial institutions, public, of course, uh, federal government, state and local, as a share of GDP, this debt ratio globally have gone from 100% of GDP in the 1970s to 200% of GDP by 1999 to 350% of GDP and rising last year. In advanced economies, the average is 420, in China, 330 and rising. Now, until two years ago, debt ratio were high, but debt servicing ratios were low because we had zero policy rates, negative policy rates, quantitative easing, credit easing. So both short and long rates were low. And while debt ratio were high, that servicing ratio, the interest that you have to pay on these debts were low. You know, only two years ago, it was an $18 trillion equivalent of public debt between Europe and Japan that had the negative nominal yields. In Denmark, even mortgages were having a negative nominal yield. And therefore, while we had situation potential of debt unsustainability, debt servicing were so low that even a zombie, zombie households, zombie corporates, zombie businesses, zombie governments, zombie banks, zombie shadow banks could survive even low debt servicing ratios. Now that party unfortunately is over because uh, for a number of reasons inflation is rising and now central banks are entering an economic downturn, not being able to cut policy rates but having to rise them in order to fight inflation. So not only debt ratios are high, but the debt servicing ratios are now becoming uh, higher and unsustainable. When people talk about what has happened with Silicon Valley Bank or with Credit Suisse or other financial institution as if it's just some uh, bad luck. It's not bad luck. Uh, I saw it coming and that's what I said in the book. As we have an inflation problem, we'll have to raise interest rates, as we raise interest rates, high-level institutions are going to have debt problems. And this is the beginning of manifestation of those debt problems. They go well beyond the banking system. It includes the corporate sector, it includes parts of the household sector, it includes governments, includes a, a large number of countries. So we're starting to see the mother of all of these debt crises. And unfortunately, you know, in the 1970s, we had negative supply shocks, like the oil shock of 73 and 79, that led us to inflation and recession stagflation, but debt ratios were low, 100% of GDP in US and Europe. So we did not have a debt crisis. We had a debt crisis in Latin America, because when Volcker had to jack up interest rates to 20%, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, that borrowed like crazy in the 70s, of course, they defaulted but we didn't have massive defaults in US and Europe. After the global financial crisis, we had a debt problem, household debt, housing debt, mortgages, leveraged banks. So we had a debt crisis, but because this was a demand shock and a credit crunch, we had low inflation and deflation. So we could do massive monetary, fiscal and credit easing. 
Today, instead, we have the worst of the 70s. We have a variety of negative supply shocks that are raising inflation, reducing growth, stagflation. But we have debt ratios that are much higher than they were even during the global financial crisis by an order of magnitude, as we borrowed like crazy in the last 15 years. So not only will we have inflation, not only will we have a recession, not only will we have stagflation, but we're on the verge of a stagflationary debt crisis. The worst of the 70s and the worst of the post-GFC period. So it's a nightmare. Let me ask you about price stability, Nuriel. This is interesting because during the most recent cycle we've been through, we've been hearing that about the division between the inflationists and the deflationists. There's a case out there uh, right now that says that inflation is past its peak, that we're looking at numbers uh, on the CPI and PCE that are registering from six or 12 months ago. Make the case, Nuriel, for the secular inflation scenario and why you believe that's what we're seeing. It's a secular inflation for a number of reasons. On a cyclical basis, uh, labor markets are super tight in US, but also in Europe. You have unemployment rates you haven't seen in decades. We have aging of population. We have the fall in labor force participation rate. We have restriction to migration. We have the great resignation. Uh, we have uh, beginning of labor strife, both in the US and Europe. So wage inflation, in US is in a five to 6% range, consistent with inflation core being at four, not at two, not this year, not next year and so on. So that, that remains an issue. Two, uh, in my view, while commodity prices are falling now because people are worried about uh, a recession, in the commodity markets, there is tightness. Tightness because China is gonna grow faster this year, demand for commodities is gonna be higher because the Russia-Ukraine war is gonna get worse, and therefore shocks to energy prices, fertilizer, foods, and industrial metal can occur. And massively, we have underinvested into new capacity of uh, energy and industrial metals for a number of reasons. So there is a structural undersupply of new capacity of energy, industrial metals, green metals, and so on. So the combination of all these things imply that commodity prices, leaving aside the scare of a recession, are gonna remain high. So high wage inflation, high commodity prices, there's no way that core inflation is gonna fall to 3% this year in the US or in the Eurozone and to 2% next year. Core inflation is gonna remain around four plus, and therefore either central banks raise rates much more, the Fed above 6%, the ECB above, for or otherwise inflation is gonna remain high on a cyclical basis. On a structural basis, we have a problem because given the amounts of private and public debt, we don't have only fiscal dominance. Fiscal dominance means that in the game of chicken between central banks and fiscal authorities, the central banks have to blink because with too much private, too much public debt and deficits, if you don't blink, you have a debt crisis, but we have a bigger, debt trap. There is not only too much public debt, there's also too much private debt. And if central banks raise interest rates enough to fight inflation, they cause not only a sovereign debt crisis, but also a private debt crisis. And what has happened with the US and European banks is the beginning of a manifestation of that debt trap. Final point, therefore, central banks will have to blink. They'll have to wimp out and monetize the deficits because otherwise we get into a 
private and public debt prices. Final point, why inflation is going to be structurally higher. We live in a world in which uh, uh, governments will have to spend more because they have to fight at least five wars. One is a security war. Everybody's going to have to spend more on defense. Europeans against the Russian bear, Americans against the Russian bear, and China. The Chinese will spend more. Australia spend more. Japan is going to spend more. India is going to spend more. Everybody has to spend more on defense to fight either cold wars or hot wars. War number one. War number two is going to cost us a fortune to fight climate change. Trillions of dollars of public spending to either mitigate or adapt to it. Number three, either we spend a fortune to prevent the next the global pandemic, or like in COVID, if we don't do it in advance, expose the fiscal cost of picking up the mess are going to be in the trillions of dollars. Four, a combination of still globalization, however reduced, and of automation and robotics, what people call globotics, is going to imply massive disruption of jobs. They're going to be wiped out because of uh, this technological and globalization revolution. Therefore, we have to have a wider social safety net to fight against these consequences of robotic and automation. And five, there is so much income and wealth inequality that unless you address with it with policy that redistribute income to those who are left behind, you'll have massive civil strife, really, at the level of major social strife across advanced economies and emerging markets. Historically, whenever there is a real war, as Neil Ferguson has shown, there is budget deficits, and then we monetize them, we cause inflation. This time around, there's not just hot and cold war to fight, but four other wars to fight. Each one of them is implying more government spending as a share of GDP. We're not going to be able to raise taxes enough. One, because it's political, not feasible, and economical is going to damage growth. So we'll have structural budget deficits that are going to be larger. We either monetize them and cause inflation, or if we don't monetize them, eventually you have a debt crisis or you're going to crowd out economic growth or both. So we'll have to monetize them. And therefore, we're going to have a structurally higher inflation. So the great moderation is over, and we're going to be in a world of great inflationary and stagflationary instability. These are all both cyclical and secular factors that are going to lead us to higher inflation over the medium term. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Yeah, I want to talk about geopolitics. Your points there remind me of the great 
Dwight Eisenhower's speech from 1953, the chance for speech, speech, where he said, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. Dwight Eisenhower's nobody's idea of a hippie uh, peacenik, uh, certainly by any stretch. Talk a little bit about the geopolitical context that we find ourselves within today and what it implies for fiscal and economic activity in the world. Well, you were speaking about the trade-off between bread and butter on one side and guns, implying that if you want more guns, maybe there's less bread and butter. But the world in which you can borrow, we want uh, the guns and we need also the transfers to make sure that you don't have social political instability. And the consequences of having guns, bread and butter is more spending with less taxes, more budget deficits, and eventually we're going to monetize them. Now, what about the geopolitics? The geopolitics implies that uh, there's geopolitical depression because you have a bunch of revisionist powers, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, possibly Pakistan and others that are effectively allied. Uh, these uh, strategic rivals of the US and the West are essentially challenging the economic, trade, monetary, financial, investment, political, geopolitical, security, and military order that the US, Europe, and the West created after World War II. They want a different order. That's why we have a cold war is getting colder. We already have a hot war between Russia and Ukraine. It's gonna get uglier. It could involve NATO, it could become non-conventional. And therefore, this geopolitical depression is going to be one of the key factors leading to deglobalization. Deglobalization was already occurring because there are winners and losers, because uh, environmental concern, because of labor concern. But now geopolitics is going to divide the world in two. It's going to fragment it. It's going to balkanize it. And rather than having uh, free trade, now we're talking not only about fair trade, but also secure trade. Instead of offshoring, we're talking about reshoring or French shoring, and instead of just in time global supply chains, we are thinking about just in case global supply chains that have been redundant in case there is a shock with China and so on. All this leading to decoupling, to balkanization, to fragmentation, to the division of the world, and it's going to reduce potential growth and it's going to increase cost of production causing stagflationary shock look no further than the UK. Why the UK is now much higher inflation than the rest of Europe and the recession is going to last much longer. It's subject to the same shocks, energy shocks like the rest of Europe, but it's a much worse situation because they shoot themselves in the foot. A self-inflicted goal like Brexit that reduced trade in goods, reduced trade in services, reduced the mobility of labor, and that's why the UK has inflation much higher than the rest of the Eurozone, and a recession is more severe already now than the rest of the Eurozone. So globally, think about Brexit, Brexit, and think about deglobalization, and protectionism being a larger version of Brexit. Uh, that's some of the economic consequences of going in a world that is geopolitically divided, where there is a fragmentation, where there is protectionism, where there is decoupling, reshoring, friendshoring, fair and secure trade, and it leads to higher cost of production, lower growth, 
and is stagflationary, among other things. Leaving aside the risk of war among a great nations that could be not just conventional, but escalate into unconventional. Yeah. Um, and for those who don't know, of course, unconventional is the potential threat of tactical or even strategic nuclear weapons being deployed, a, a horrifying scenario. Yeah. And by the way, I said today things are the worst of the 70s in terms of stagflationary shock and the worst of the post-GFC in terms of debt problems. But in many ways, this geopolitical depression makes the world look like the 1930s that then led to the wars of World War II. And yet 30 years between 1914 and 1945 were 30 years of a nightmare. In spite of the first era of globalization, in spite of the first industrial revolution, we did not prevent World War I. And after World War I, we had the Spanish flu, then with the stock market crash of 29, then we had the beginning of the Great Depression, then we had trade and currency war, then we had financial crisis and massive bankruptcies and defaults, then we had capital controls, then we had the economic meltdown with the Great Depression becoming worse and unemployment rates of 20%, and then the Nazis came to power in Germany, the fascists in Italy, Franco in Spain, and the militaries in Japan, and then we ended up with World War II, and then the Holocaust. So, and today, by the way, things are worse than the 30s. Why? In the 30s, we didn't have to worry about global climate change. It was not even in the radar screen. In the 30s, we didn't have to worry about AI destroying most jobs. There were not even computer, let alone AI. In the 30s, we didn't have to worry about implicit liability of governments. Because in addition to explicit debt, implicit liability coming from aging, social security and Medicare systems that are pay-as-you-go funded, did not exist. Social Security had been barely created, and the average worker would die at the age of 60 before he or she would get the first Social Security check at the age of 62. And as ugly as World War I and World War II were, there were conventional wars. It was only at the end of World War II that luckily the U.S. got the bomb, rather Nazi Germany or the Japanese, and unfortunately, nuclear bombs were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end World War II. This time around, if you're going to have a war between great powers, it's not going to be conventional because all these great powers have the nuclear bomb. And a war that starts as conventional is going to become unconventional and with the specter of a nuclear winter. So compared to the 30s, we have four mega threats, climate change, AI, unfunded implicit liability of the government, and the risk of a nuclear winter that did not even exist in the 1930s. So the risk to destroy our own species, either through climate destruction or a nuclear winter or through AI destroying most of humanity, is a bigger threat today than it was even in the 1930s. Yeah, and by the way, not merely atomic, but hydrogen thermonuclear weapons uh, whose yields are measured in megatons rather than kilotons, a significant advance uh, unfortunately, in that technology as well. You touched on Spanish flu in your remarks. I wanted to come back to the economic costs of pandemics. The word pandemic appears in mega threats 56 times. Talk a little bit about the economic impact of pandemics. Well, before I speak about the economic impacts, you have to ask yourself why we did not have any pandemics after the Spanish flu since the early 1980s. And since the 1980s, we've had 
a series of one more virulent than severe. We had first HIV, then SARS, then MERS, then swine flu, then several episodes of bird flu, Zika, Ebola, and now COVID-19. And it's only a matter of time we're going to have COVID-23 or 24 or whatever else. There is a very strong correlation between global climate change and global pandemics. As we destroy the animal ecosystems by encroaching on them, what's happening is that animals that have uh, pathogens like pangolin, bats, and others get closer to livestock animals and to humans. That's why we have these zoonotic diseases that transfer from animal to human. And that's why we get them more frequent and more virulent. By encroaching on the ecosystem, they're closer, they make the animals sick and the humans sick. So because of climate change, man-made disaster, global pandemics are becoming more frequent and more virulent. And trust me, COVID-24 or 25 or whatever, the next pandemic is going to be, maybe another more severe episode of bird flu, scientists are already telling us it's going to be more severe than COVID-19. And COVID-19 led to dozens of millions of people dying and economic costs like the worst recession we had since uh, World War II and fiscal costs in the trillions of dollars that we had spent a fortune to deal with the economic impact of that recession. So COVID-19 was a disaster economically, was a disaster fiscally, was a disaster from a health point of view in all dimensions. And the next pandemic is going to be worse than COVID-19. So that's the risk we're facing right now. We're still recovering from the consequences of COVID-19. The fiscal impact of it, the economic impact of it, the health impact of it, the social and political impact of it, even geopolitical, as US and China have been blaming each other on who was at fault for COVID-19. So it's not just the economic and financial impact, it's also the severe social health, political and geopolitical of pandemics. We have to keep in mind. So Nuriel, I want to switch gears here uh, from the global to the national. You mentioned that Scylla and Charybdis, that the Fed has to steer itself between uh, with the risk of recession on the one hand and the risk of inflation on the other. Talk a little bit about what your view is in terms of what you expect to see from the Fed. You've spent time at the New York Fed yourself. How do you think they're processing this information and what's the most likely outcome? Well, until one week ago, as I pointed out, there was a dilemma. Now it's a trilemma. It's not how you trade off uh, fighting inflation without causing a recession, but also how you fight inflation without causing a financial meltdown, because right. raising rates leads to financial instability. So that trade-off was hard enough before, has become harder. But I said it in my book. I said, well, in that debt trap, as you raise interest rate to fight inflation, you'll have financial instability. And what has happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and other regional banks is the beginning of manifestation of that kind of a financial instability. So, you know, the Fed is right now in a difficult spot. If you want to fight inflation, uh, the Fed should be raising rates, uh, you know, this week in March by 50 basis points. If you want to avoid financial instability, uh, the Fed should be actually pausing any Fed uh, rate hike. And if you're worried about growth, and growth is already slowing down, and with the banking problem, there'll be a serious credit crunch. It's going to limit the ability of regional 
banks to lend money to households and small and medium-sized businesses. And those household and small-sized businesses that are relying on bank financing, not from money center banks, but from the First Republic, Silicon Valley, and other regional banks, then there'll be a credit crunch is going to lead to a recession. And that would imply we should not raise rates by 50, maybe only by 25. Now, whether the Fed is going to stay on hold this time around or raise rates by 25, 50 is off the table, uh, in some sense, uh, doesn't matter. Because the, even if you do zero or 25, you're sc still going to be in trouble. Be in trouble because inflation is still too high and you should be raising rates all the way, not just to five, you have to raise rates all the way to 6% if you're serious about inflation. But with rates already in the 4.5 range, we're already seeing cracks in the financial system, let alone if you were to go to five, five and a half and six. And therefore this trilemma to fight inflation we're going to cause a recession and a financial crisis now has become worse given the events of the last uh, couple of weeks. And either way, we're going to have a hard landing of the economy and of financial markets. Central banks are damned if they do, damned if they don't. They were in a pickle before they are now in a worse pickle. So there is no easy way out of it because the forces that lead to inflation are there. The forces that lead to recession and stagflation are there. And the forces that lead to financial instability, high private and public debt, are historic. They've been going on for decades, so you cannot resolve them overnight. So either way, you get a hard landing of the real economy and or of financial markets. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. you mentioned the banking system talking of dilemmas one of the challenges that we see now uh, is this idea uh, of attempting to uh, rescue shore up isolate insulate build up the regional banking system and then the attendant risks of capital flight from the regional banking system to the so-called gsibs uh, the globally systemically important banks how do you think about the risks specific to the regional banking system and the risk of a kind of hyper consolidation of those assets moving into the GSIBs? Certainly, there'll be a severe credit crunch right now because the regional banks uh, have uh, first a significant amount of uh, losses that are not recognized given their portfolio of securities. Uh, some of them have a very narrow deposit base. Silicon Valley was an example, Signature Bank, Silvergate, First Republic, but some others as well. So the risk of a run on uninsured deposits when you have a narrow deposit base is severe. But these uh, regional banks are at the core of financing SMEs and households. The big uh, money center banks uh, do less of it, and big firms tend to be borrowing from capital markets. So the outflow of deposits out of the regional banks is going to imply they're going to lend more, less to households less to businesses, less to medium-sized corporates, less for mortgages. And that credit crunch makes the risk of a severe recession even higher. And the problem is that you cannot essentially backstop all uninsured deposits uh, because you're creating a huge moral hazard problem. But if you don't insure them, then the 
movement of deposits out of these regional banks to the larger ones is going to become more significant. The risk is that other banks go bust and or that they curtail credit in a way that's going to hurt the, the, the real economy. And, uh, and if you were to eventually merge some of these banks with the larger money center banks, the oligopolistic aspect of the banking system is going to get worse. We already have systemically important large banks like JP Morgan, Citi, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, among others. You'll have even greater concentration of the financial system that creates uh, uh, banks that are too big to fail, even bigger uh, too big to fail, but they're also too big to be saved. Mm. So, so we are in a situation that is going to create even more the risk of something systemic over time. Yeah, that sort of implicitly brings with it the risk of a kind of zombification of the banking system. Is there a risk that we are turning Japanese in the sense of a stultified banking system? Yes, it's a it's a possibility. Certainly, the regional banks that are the core of financing middle America, household, small businesses, small and medium-sized firms are going to be in a squeeze. That credit crunch by itself is going to make the recession kind of more severe. We're going to have less competition. We'll have more concentration. And we'll have more systemically important banks that are too big to fail and too big to be saved. And, uh, and, and that's, that's dangerous. And uh, while large firms can finance themselves with capital market, uh, banks are important for the financing of the rest of the economy. And if these uh, regional banks are going to be squeezed or disappear, uh, the risk of a severe credit crunch and impact on the real economy becomes more severe. Well, let's uh, shift gears here and talk a little bit about AI. Uh, you actually quote John Maynard Keynes from 100 years ago in your book talking about technological unemployment. What's your broad outlook for AI? <clears throat> well, the good news is that the combination of AI, machine learning, robotic, automation, quantum computing, and the revolution is going to imply not only in AI, but also in biomedical research and application, in material sciences, you name it, could increase potential growth significantly higher and could make situations that are, I have to say, unsustainable, like private and public debt, more sustainable, increasing the economic pie. That's the hope. However, AI, machine learning, robotic automation has at least three collateral damages. One, it can lead to permanent technological unemployment, not only for routine jobs that are blue collar, they're going to be automated, not only for routine uh, uh, blue collar jobs, cognitive jobs, they can be also automated because they can be sliced and diced in a series of tasks that can be automated. But even, even creative jobs, uh, could be eventually disrupted by technology. I'll give you one example. You know, my day job is not just to predict uh, uh, what's going to happen to the global economy in the next 20 years, but, you know, I run economic consultancy. My clients want to know what the Fed is going to do this week or what the ECB or Bank of England or Bank of Japan. Now, a good 
ECB or a Fed watcher, say Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, probably has a PhD and makes a good salary, at least a million dollar a year between salary and bonus. Those are highly priced jobs. If you can get the Fed and ECB right, uh, really that's very valuable to investors uh, in terms of predicting the movement of short rates. These are high quality jobs. Now today, a Fed watcher, ECB watcher can do it better than AI. But tomorrow, when they chat GPT-4 or another variant of it, there'll be an AI that looks at all economic data, all economic models, every speech and utterance by a Fed FMC official, and every reaction function of the Fed throughout this history. And it's only a matter of two or three years when that AI not only is going to predict the Fed decision better than any human, it's going to also tell you exactly what's going to be in the statement of the FMC, and it's going to tell you also what's going to be in the presser of Jay Powell or Christine Lagarde. Well, I would say maybe three to five years away. Once that happens, every top ECB or Fed watcher that makes a million dollars a year, his or her job will be gone. These are creative jobs. These are the best jobs. You make a million dollars a year, be gone. It's just one example of how even the high-end jobs, computer programming, uh, skin writer, musician, artist, all those jobs could be threatened by technology. So massive technological employment, one. Two, technology innovations are capital intensive, skill bias, and labor saving. So if you own the machine or the capital is on the machine, you're going to do well. If you're in the top 5 to 10% distribution of skills, education, human capital, for a while, the machine is going to make you more productive before you become obsolete. But for the time being, you're going to be more productive. You're going to do better. But if you are a blue collar or white collar, low value added, medium value added, your job and your income is going to be gradually but persistently replaced by technology. And therefore, inequality is going to rise. Third problem with AI, every time there is technological innovation, is usually fostered by governments. They want to build bigger weapons to fight bigger wars. It's happened throughout history, right? Uh, and this time around, whoever is going to win the race for AI, China or US, not only is going to dominate the industry of the future, but it's going to be the, also the dominant geopolitical, military, and security power in the world. That's why last year, Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, wrote a book together with Henry Kissinger, our foremost uh, geopolitical strategist in the US, saying the race between US and China on AI is not only about who's going to be the dominant economic power, but also the dominant military and security power. Hmm. Because the nature of warfare, even in Russia and Ukraine, now depends on AI, machine learning, satellites, big data, to then launch the missiles in the right place against the right uh, uh, targets. 90% of it is AI. Only 10% of it is actually the missile. So the nature of warfare is going to be very different. Now people say, well, with a bigger economic pie, uh, we're going to be able to tax the winners and redistribute income to the losers or those left behind. We'll have the financial resources to do so. That's true. But that's UBI, universal basic income, or right. universal provisions of public services for free. The problem is you'll have a whole class of people that essentially uh, live on welfare check. People want the dignity of work, of job, of being 
productive yes. member of societies. Once you have uh, this underclass, you'll have social and political problem. So the idea that UBI is going to be the solve the whole problem is not true. We'll have social problems that are going to become right. very severe. We're well, Nuriel, class of unemployed people. Nuriel, if I had a trust fund, I wouldn't be getting out of bed before noon. So I, I'm always thankful for having meaningful work uh, myself. Let me ask you this. Uh, you mentioned the labor-saving component uh, of artificial intelligence. Is that potentially deflationary, significantly deflationary? And could we see a kind of fragmentation of pricing uh, between services which become deflationary due to AI and, for example, commodities and food rising in price? Well, in the book, I identify 10 negative supply shocks that are stagflationary, reduced growth and increasing inflation over the medium term. And I'm not going to summarize them all right now, but that's why my thesis is that in the next uh, decade, we're going to have uh, inflation and stagflation. However, I do agree that eventually AI, robotic, automation, machine learning is going to be deflationary because the economic pie is going to become bigger and the cost of producing not just goods, but even services could fall dramatically. Lots of services. Look about autonomous vehicle and the cost of transportation is going to drop like a stone, for example. And right. even medical services may become cheaper if you have AI curing diseases in a customized individual way. So it's not just goods, uh, sorry, not just the services, goods could also be eventually with material sciences and other things, uh, disinflationary. So eventually we're gonna have good deflation through AI, but it's gonna destroy most jobs. Extreme argument, you could have 10% growth in the economy, potential, and having 80% unemployment rate, right? Mm. Usually we think of high growth with high employment, the opposite, we'll have the fastest economic growth in human history, and we'll have massive unemployment. That's a paradox of a positive aggregate supply shock. But before we get to that nirvana, and as I said, not gonna be such a nirvana because then you need UBI and people are not gonna have dignity of work. Before that, we'll have a decade where on one side, the globalization and protectionism, reshoring and transshoring, aging of population, restriction of migration, geopolitical depression and decoupling, global climate change, pandemic, cyber warfare, backlash against income and wealth inequality, de-dollarization are gonna be all stagflationary forces that are gonna reduce growth and increase inflation. So we'll have a decade of inflation and stagflation followed by maybe decades of good uh, deflation where all jobs are gonna disappear. So we'll have a different problem to face. So yes, eventually, Technology is going to win that race, leading to deflation rather than inflation, but after an ugly decade of stagflation. Nuria, I know we're going to lose you in a few minutes. You have some other commitments, but I wanted to get in a couple of quick questions. You also have a chapter in the book entitled The Demographic Time Bomb. What does that mean and why is it a risk? Well, we have aging of populations, not only in the US, Europe, Japan, and most advanced economies, but now also in the uh, large and important emerging markets. You have it in China, you have it in Russia, you have it in Korea, you have it in Taiwan. And as you get to middle income or higher income, uh, that's gonna happen also in other emerging markets, say in, uh, in, in Asia. The problem with aging population are several. One, for any level of productivity growth, uh, 
having less people implies lower potential growth, just you have less bodies producing. Secondly, a lot of productivity growth is embedded into new capital goods. And therefore, if you have less people, you have less investment in new capital that embodies the new technology that have high productivity growth. That reduces potential growth. Three, uh, lower, uh, lower jobs and lower number of people implies that unfunded liability coming from aging of population, meaning uh, social security system and Medicare that is pay as you go, becomes more unsustainable. And that implicit debt is already averaging 100% of GDP in advanced economies. Now, in the past, the solution to these problems were migration. If you have migration from south to north, from the poor to the rich, you increase the supply of labor, you increase potential growth, you reduce the implicit debt, you maintain productivity growth. But now there's already a backlash against migration because uh, whether you like it or not, the perception is that these migrants have different culture, society, religion, skin, you name it. A lot of it might be racist, but unfortunately there is this backlash. Two, to some extent, while migrants increase potential growth, they crowd out some public services, housing, health, education, you name it. So there is a bit of a backlash against that. And three, in a world of AI, most jobs are gonna disappear and therefore we're gonna need less of these migrants. But the migrants are gonna become a larger number because in a world of global climate change, of economic and financial and political meltdowns, failed states are gonna become larger and millions, potentially billions of people will have to move from places in the world that are either too dangerous or too hot or too flooded to live. So if you worry about a few hundred thousand Central Americans coming to US today, or a million Syrians going to Germany, wait until it's not 1 million per year, but 10 or 20 or 50 million per year having to move. You're gonna have mass potential migration, of course, when mm -hmm. I close those borders. So you have yeah. this nightmare of aging, reducing potential growth. Migration could be a solution, but it's not because there's a backlash against it. And anyhow, AI is gonna destroy most jobs and we're not gonna need the migrants. So it becomes a perfect storm. Nuriel, with all of these points that you've laid out, is this the moment? Is this the risk of a Minsky moment rising? Uh, NASDAQ composite uh, down trailing 12 months, up about 12% year to date and over five year trailing basis up about 66%. Is this the moment right now where we're going to see a sell-off in risk assets as all of these issues converge? Well, we are there that, that sell-off. Last year, S&P fell 15%, uh, NASDAQ fell 30%, growth, tech, venture fell 40, 50, 60, even 80% for those right. who were firms that had no profits, no business plans, no real revenues. And of course, uh, bond uh, yields went higher and the price of bonds fell by 20%. So you lost more money on your safe treasuries than you did on S&P 500 and credit spreads wide, and then you lost on credit. Right. So you lost on everything. Private debt, public debt, on uh, private equity, public equity, growth, tech, venture, of course, meme stocks, crypto, uh, SPACs, uh, day trading, you name it. Everything went bust. And even cash gave you a negative return in real terms given inflation. I fear that that's gonna get worse. We're headed towards a recession, 
if we are headed towards persistent inflation, if we are headed for a financial instability and crisis, what has happened last year? You lost money on safe assets, you lost money on risky assets, it's gonna continue. We'll have a bigger correction of US and global equity, bigger co uh, correction of other risky assets, whether it's real estate or private equity or growth stocks or tech, and you'll have further losses on bonds and credit because with high inflation, bonds now are only three and a half. They can go to five, six, seven, eight in a world where average inflation is five or six percent. So that bloodbath is going to continue, unfortunately, rather than reverse itself. Nero, what's there to be optimistic about right now? I know that you write about the solutions in this book. Uh, two points that you make there are innovation and high-powered economic growth having the potential to mitigate some of these issues. What's there to be optimistic about, and how do you see a solution set potentially being implemented? Well, for any one of these mega threats that discuss the potential solution, and I make the point there's no free lunch, every solution implies cost and sacrifices in the short term for the common good over the medium long term. And the question is whether we'll have the political fortitude to do the right thing, first point. Secondly, rather than platitudes about uh, greater you know, cohesion, better political leadership, national or global, it's not gonna happen. In the past, what saves us was technology. Technological innovation increased the economic pie, increased economic growth. The technological innovation can increase potential growth and make debts more sustainable. They can resolve problems of climate change. They can resolve problems of pandemics. They can resolve other problems. So uh, essentially technology is the only thing that can save us. But as I said, technology is gonna lead to permanent technology unemployment. It's gonna lead to greater inequality and it's gonna lead to more conflict as you build bigger weapons to fight bigger wars. So the question is, can we correlate this technology then to redistribute from winners to losers, to maintain social stability and to avoid a global war using bigger weapons among global powers? If we do that, maybe there's a path that's gonna lead us to a better future. Otherwise we could end up with a destroying the planet or destroying the species through nuclear winter, through climate change, through AI destroying the human species, through financial economic meltdowns, and through pandemics that are gonna make look COVID-19 like a, like a spare change compared to what ugly stuff could happen in the future. So I don't know whether we'll have the fortitude to do the right thing, but certainly technology can help us to avoid the disaster. Finally, for investors listening uh, who see this panoply of threats quavering on the horizon, but what would you tell them? How do they position themselves? How do they even begin to think about a framework to understand how to invest in markets where the world, uh, in your view, is in such a perilous position? Well, historically, the defensive asset is uh, long-term safe uh, fixed income, say long-term treasuries. The idea is 60-40 portfolio, 60 in risky equity, 40 in safe long-term bonds, or 70-30, or even fancy variants of it like Ray Dalio's and Bridgewater's risk parity. Uh, but that assumes that the correlation between equity prices and bond prices is negative. And usually that's truly the case. Risk on, risk off, growth recession. When there is risk on and there is growth, equity do well, bonds go higher, you lose money on the bond part of your portfolio. When there is risk off or there is a recession, 
equity do poorly, bond yield falls, and you make money by the rising price of bond prices on the, on the uh, fixed income part of your portfolio. But when inflation is uh, gradually rising, you lose money on equities because uh, the discount factor for those dividends and profits, the long rate is higher. But the higher long bond yield means a lower price for those bonds. So like last year, you lost money on equities, but you lost money even more so on safe bonds. Right. So the correlation becomes positive from negative, and there is nowhere to hide. Now, if you worry that average inflation is going to be higher, let alone social, geopolitical, de-dollarization risk, you need to find the hedges against inflation and the basement of fiat currency. I would say one is short-term treasuries. The yield goes higher, and you don't have the price fall of long-duration fixed income. Two tips and other inflation index bonds are going to have a higher return when inflation is higher without, again, having the losses. Three, gold and precious metals. When you have inflation at the basement of fiat currency, gold as well. When you have a risk of a banking financial crisis, gold as well. It's gone up 10% in the last two weeks, given the banking stresses. When you have a geopolitical risk, if China has to worry about the treasury being seized by the U.S., the same way in which the effects reserve of China were taken by the U.S. and Europe, then you have to move in an asset that cannot be seized by the West. The only one that's an international uh, store of value is gold. Gold is going to do better when you have a geopolitical risk. And finally, when there's inflation, real estate does better usually than equities because in the short run, commercial residential real estate is in fixed supply. So it tends to hurt less than equities. However, you have to be in sustainable real estate because a lot of real estate is going to be stranded because of climate change, flood, hurricanes, typhoons, fires, droughts, and you name it, wildfires. So public grids that are investing in sustainable parts of North America. So combination of short-term treasuries of uh, tips of gold and precious metals and of sustainable real estate is a hedge against the risk you're facing and the mega threats. And I'm involved into a new venture together with Goldman Sachs that created an index that represents a, a synthetic formulation of these mm. asset classes in a way that will be a better defensive assets. Last year, $20 trillion of dollar fixed income debt, whether it's treasuries, yen debt, high yield, high grade, they lost about 20% of their value because of the rising interest rates. That's a $4 trillion of losses. And what has happened to Credit Suisse or SVP is only a small fraction of that. Yeah, I know. Those losses can continue and they're going to be higher. Because if average inflation is going to be six, long bond yields are going to be eight. So they are at three and a half. Going from three and a half bond yields to eight implies another 50% yeah. losses on the market value of unquote safe long duration dollar-related uh, fixed income. You have to protect yourself. That's what you have to do, whether you're an endowment or a foundation or a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund or any investor. You have some allocation to dollar long-duration fixed income. You have to move away out of it. Otherwise, you're going to lose more money than on equities. I know you have to leave us, uh, but I wanted to get your final thoughts, key takeaways, particularly at this moment uh, where we see the venerable old institution Credit Suisse, uh, where I worked early in my career, disappearing, being absorbed into UBS. Final thoughts, key takeaways in this environment for people uh, that you would like to leave them with. 
Well, we're at the beginning of a much more severe financial instability. Right now, the banks are in trouble. But actually, in the last decade, most banks were safer after the global financial crisis, more capital, more liquidity, less leverage. Was shadow banks, private equity firms, private credit, CLOs, leveraged loans, hedge funds, and you name it, that were massively leveraged. And some of them already started to go bust. Greensill, Archegos, and you name it. And that was part of the problem of Credit Suisse. But if you worry that the banks are in trouble, and duration risk and market risk is going to soon become credit risk with a recession, wait until the stresses on the non-banking, shadow banking system are going to lead to massive collapse of major institutions, small and large. So we are at the beginning of that episode of financial instability. And it'll be a tsunami. The central banks are not going to be able to stand. Nero Rubini, always a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. Great being with you today. Obviously, a very sobering conversation with Dr. Rubini, touching on a broad array of different issues, uh, financial, economic, monetary, and also technology, some of the risks that he sees facing the world with pandemics uh, and global warming, geopolitics, a clearly very well thought through thesis that he makes in his book. Uh, some of the things that struck me particularly as concerning in the shorter term was this notion of a trilemma faced by central banks, the idea that banks must simultaneously optimize against inflation, uh, prevent recession, while simultaneously managing for financial stability, an almost impossible trinity. Interesting conversation. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 